Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively. Today I'm going to talk to Brian Adler. He is the house sound engineer at Cafe du Nord in San Francisco and most recently the tour manager and front of house mixer for the Stone Foxes and Dan Kroll. Brian, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. What's your favorite restaurant in San Francisco? Let me see, hold on. My favorite restaurant in San Francisco, well. Is there a place that you go to regularly? Well, yeah, there's a lot. Well, first off, I go to a lot of Mexican food places. I'm pretty much a burrito connoisseur. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get fat by eating nothing but salads. Uh, but um, my favorite, one of my favorite restaurants in the city uh, would have to be um, Ibisu, which is a uh, sushi place on 9th Avenue, 9th and Irving, um, that I love to bits. What's awesome about Bisu? Oh my God, they got like the best sushi rolls. They have this roll, it's called the crunchy roll, and it's um, tempura and spicy tuna wrapped in a soy wrap as opposed to seaweed. Whoa. Yeah, dude, it's real. And it's <laughs> it's real delicious. It's like out of control. Uh, what are some other favorites? Well, uh, you know, Taqueria Cancun in the Mission. I grew up going there all the time. There's one that's like literally down the hill from my parents' house and now my apartment. Um, but if I wanted to get the best burrito, is there a best burrito or since there you're is a burrito no, sewer, there is no, there's just there's no such thing. Varieties. Right. Okay. There's no such thing as like the best burrito. It all depends. depends the, on your, it depends on what you're looking for. The mood for. you're in. Right. So like, you, you know, La Taqueria, which is the which is the, the Taqueria place on twenty fifth and mission, or twenty fourth and mission just before. Um, it has like some fantastic tacos, but their burritos are a little small. Um, but they're but the meat's like really good. El Farolito has fantastic steak. Their chicken is like meh, but they <laughs> but the the steak is like fantastic, and the actual burrito wrap like they fry up the uh, the tortillas. So it's it's pretty it's pretty legit. It just depends on what you want, you know. Uh, there's uh, there's another one that's like right by Glen the Glen Park Bart Station that I used to frequent all the time. They make great burritos. They steam the tortillas, mm-hmm. and they have fantastic chicken. Their their pollo soup, oh, it's really good. I could go on like forever. We don't even <laughs> need to talk about audio. We can just talk burritos the whole time. No, that sounds good. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah we can just do that. It's fine. How did you get your first job in audio? It's kind of a long story, but. I went to an audio school in Los Angeles in 2002, 2002. Which one? I went to the Los Angeles Recording Workshop, which is now owned by Full Sail, but it used to be its own independent school. Don't they own Expressions as well? Yes, I believe okay. they own Expressions as well. I think, I think that's the case. I could be wrong. Um, but I had, to get out of the, I had to get out of the Bay Area. I was playing in a hardcore band, eating burritos, and just playing video games all day. And I really wanted to do something. Um, and, I, and I loved being in the studio. I loved it. And then I went to audio school and got an internship and hated audio. <laughs> hated, being in, hated being in recording studios. I hated dealing with the engineers. I hated dealing with the staff. I hated the, the runs they would get me on. I'm like, I paid so much money for this school and I want to go intern somewhere and nobody's going to hire me. The assistant, I remember, I remember this assistant engineer came in to give a talk at our school and he said, you can intern for, you know, probably three or four years and then you'll be promoted to the assistant engineer. And this guy in our class, he rose his hand and he was like, how much does an assistant engineer get paid? And he's like, well, the assistant engineers get paid about $10 an hour. Ooh. And everybody in the room got real quiet, <laughs> right? And then another guy was like, well, how long were you an assistant engineer? He goes, well, I just became an engineer. I was an assistant engineer for seven years. Wow. And so, so I put together, I was like, that guy had been in that recording studio for a decade, three years of which... He didn't get paid a dime. And then when he got paid, he got $10 an hour. Maybe he's dealing drugs on the side. Whatever. Whatever he was doing on the side to make a little bit of money <laughs> is like whatever he was doing. If he was dealing drugs, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I got really, like, discouraged with audio. Um, and then I ended up taking an internship uh, at a record label, um, Capitol Records. 
and I ended up doing marketing for Capital for three years. That's and then different. I, that's different. And then I went to Rhino Entertainment and Warner Brothers. I got looped up into this music business world. But I really, you know, I still loved audio. I just never could do it. I just was completely disenfranchised with it. And then um, I got a job at a guitar company, and I hated it. And I won't <laughs> say what the guitar company is, but I hated it. I love the people that I worked with, but I hated it. I really just had a dislike for it, and I wanted to get back into audio, like, really bad. Hmm. And I had been like... What changed your mind? Why did you want to get back into audio? At the beginning, you were like, this was a dumb idea. Well, because I, what I had been doing on the side was I was, like, weekend warrioring it with mm. this guy. Um, I can't even say... So you were still doing audio. Yeah, but okay. just, like, for fun, like, kind of on the side, like... You know, I'd go to a friend's punk show and I'd like raise a fader because I knew what that was because I had met these people when I was at audio school. And so a buddy of mine was booking shows at a club called the Cobalt Cafe in Los Angeles. And I was just calling him bitching about work. It's like, I'm sitting here doing spreadsheets, man. Like, I just need to be doing, I need to be dealing with microphones again. I don't know why I got really disenfranchised with the studio life. And he was like, well, you know, dude, why don't you just do live? And I'm like, well, but who's going to hire me? He's like, there's unions in Los Angeles that, like, prevent guys from getting real gigs. It's, like, it's a real kind of tough life in Los Angeles to do live sound because there's a lot of old guys that have their gigs, and they're not losing them to some young punk kid who just got out of school, you know? It's a very tough world to be in. Um, but he was booking shows at this club, and he was like, dude, I'll hire you. I was like, great. He goes, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, I'm at work until like 5 o'clock. He's like, great, show up at 6. I said, all right. So I go to this club, and it was eight bands, $5 show. I got paid 10 bucks, and it was four microphones and one monitor. <laughs> and it was on a Mackie 1202, and it had 12 channels, and I think... I remember correctly, only five of them actually worked. Um, the people that were doing sound before me were the door guys. They didn't. They would just turn it on and then they'd walk out. Brilliant. So uh, sounds like one. it was it was good timing. I mean, you knew the booking manager, but then you had to tell him at the right time. Right. Um, I'm looking for a gig, right. and it all worked out. Right, and then that's that's how I started. But it, but what ended up happening was. When I decided that I wanted to do that full time after spending a year of basically like running around and, you know, doing full time work plus doing that on the side, when I made the decision to, to do audio full time, I moved back up to San Francisco, uh, stayed with my parents. I started interning at Bottom of the Hill. But now that I had that live experience before, my intern work was more of like a, like, I want to work. I want to work at that club. And so I want to show that club that I'm into being there and that I want to be there and that I want to learn how to do live sound at what I believed to be one of the best clubs in town. And it was a club that I grew up going to and it wasn't, you know, like the Warfield. It wasn't the Fillmore. It was like, it almost felt like I was interning in my own backyard. I grew up going to Bottom of the Hill shows like so all the time. So why don't you explain to people a little bit about what's going on in San Francisco. Uh, because the Warfield and the Fillmore are medium-sized venues, capacity of like 500. Well, the and you're talking about Bottom of the Hill, which is capacity of like 200. Well, Bottom of the Hill, Bottom of the Hill is a 300 cap club, right? And then, you know, you had your 500 caps, like the Independent, and uh, who else was another 500 cap in City Slims? Um, you know, and and then you had your Fillmore, which is. Uh, Capacity legally listed at eleven ninety nine. Oh, okay. And then you have the Warfield, which is about two thousand. But the, but but my main reason for picking Bottom of the Hill was that at any of those other places, it didn't seem like it was like a homely enough place where they would take on a dude who just wanted to learn. Mm. I I very much got the vibe from them that 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 place would be a place where someone like me could go in and like just learn, you know. Um, and I met a lovely engineer there who was a huge guiding force in my career. And she um, took me under her wing. She passed away like several years ago, but she she took me under her wing and was like absolutely the most important figure in my in my development as an audio engineer because she she was an old weary audio engineer gal who had been doing it for so long. I mean she was to give you an idea, she was the touring front of house for uh 
Gorilla Museum? I forget what they're called, but they opened up for Faith No More a bunch. And she played in a in a in a band in the '90s, a band in the '80s called uh, called Mud Women, and she had been touring for forever. She did sound for the gossip. You know, she she had done like a bunch of crazy things, and she was just kind of over it, you know. But she took a liking to me because I was I walked up to her, I said, "Listen, I I went to a show." I had come home, I went to a show, and I was like, my mission is to get into Bottom of the Hill. Sure enough, she was working on the night I made the decision to talk to the engineer. And I walked up to her and I was like, listen, I, I went to audio school, I did a little bit of live sound at a little dinky club in Los Angeles. I really wanna learn how to do this professionally. Do you, got, do you ever have somebody come in for free? I'll come in for free whenever you're working, like wow. whatever you need. And she was like, she looked at me and she goes, show up tomorrow at 6.30. <laughs> and so I showed up the next day at 6.15, smoking a cigarette out front, like thinking to myself, like, this is, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm going into Bottom of the Hill. And I worked there uh, while I took a job. I took a marketing job at a little startup just to make, like, you know, gas and cigarette money. She just let me come in on all of her shifts. And so I was, like, double doing double duty. I would do, like, 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. four times a week. What's the best single action you've taken or decision you've made in your career that led to the biggest positive impact? There was two things. There was that decision to go talk to Lisa Faye Beatty at Bottom of the Hill. Um, and then there was a decision that was actually made for me by my boss at that day job I had in the city. Um, she and I are still friends. She's great. She's lovely. She lives. Her name's Atia. She lives in Barcelona. Um, she fired me. And that was, the, that was one of the single greatest decisions that's ever happened in my life. <laughs> she was really upset about it. I've never been fired by somebody who was crying as they were firing me, oh saying that, like, they, I love you to bits. But what she was saying was, she was like, I love you to bits. You're, like, one of the best people I've ever met in the city. You, 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 don't, you don't deserve to be sitting at a desk doing spreadsheets. Like... You go out and do that bottom of the hill stuff and you show up to work and you're basically like, I can see like the bags under your eyes of how tired you are. <laughs> She's like, you know, I understand that you don't want to do this just quite yet. You don't want to be like an engineer quite yet, but I'm making the decision for you. You're fired. I got to let you go. And she fired me. Um. And, that, and that was the moment when it was like, okay, I went home. I'll never forget this. I went home to my parents' place. I was like, Mom, I just got fired. And she, and she was like, thank God. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, I paid for that fucking audio school, and here you are doing audio, and you're also doing this day job. She's like, okay. Well, now it's, now it's your time to, to do audio full time. And then from there, Lisa Faye and I became really close because now I was just at bottom of the hill all the time. Mm. And then I met other engineers, and I picked up all kinds of other tricks. I started doing, um, I started mixing the openers with some of the guys on some of the nights. Um, I started covering shifts at Bottom of the Hill and they got, a couple of the guys got really upset about that. So Lisa Faye and I kind of figured out that I'd just cover her shifts whenever she needed the coverage. And then she got me a job at the Brower Center because she was the first AV person there. So she needed someone else, she hired me there. Um, she also got me tour she got me gigs at other clubs. She was like my reference point for anything. The owners of Bottom of the Hill, by the way, Lynn, Ramona, Kathleen, are saints in my book. I wow. do I do just about anything for them because they when they found out that I lost my day job, they gave me bar backing shifts, they gave me door shifts, they like let me cover for that. They let me like do all the things because to them I was just a nice kid that worked for free. Well, let's talk about the, the benefits of working at smaller places because the good part is all of the connections that you make. Absolutely. And it sounds like that was your experience as oh, well. Oh, yeah, and that's the number one thing. Which is funny, it's kind of counterintuitive because if someone new were coming to San Francisco and they were asking me what they should do, I might say, 
I might suggest that they try to get a job at a really nice place like the opera or I, I don't know, really ni- nicer concert venues, like bigger places, I would say, you know, first go for the big, really nice places. But I think if you're working at those places, you're just one person in a team and you are probably then working with more established artists, not people who are coming through who actually might need you in the future. Right. And the other thing is, is that working in small places, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about working in small joints is that you're going to get more opportunities to, to actually do work. Like when I was starting out, the idea of going to the Fillmore, you know, you could go, you could go to the Fillmore and you could go to a rental company and you could go to the union. You know, I even joined the union when I first got into town. But like you're lugging out boxes and you're, you're pushing boxes and pushing boxes and then, you know, a few years of pushing boxes will lead you to a guy that'll, that'll want to teach you about audio that will then put you in in a situation where he'll have you maybe run monitors one night. If you go to like a smaller place, like a Bottom of the Hill, like a Cafe du Nord, like a Red Devil Lounge, if you go to these places, um, you'll get actual board time. You'll, you'll be able to actually mix. And you'll be able to learn. The only reason why my ears are good enough to say do monitors in the first place, right? For example, like I do monitors at Slim's, right? I do that on the weekends here. You know, the only reason why I know that is because I know the pain of like turning up someone's vocal and it just like squealing on somebody and being <laughs> like, and looking at, looking at like 31 bands of EQ going, I don't know which one it is. I know you're supposed to, but I don't know which one it is, you know? Um, and you only learn that like on the job. So what I tell people all the time is, you know, if you want to go to a big place, do it, but also go to a small place and really be connected with that because that's where you're going to meet people that you wouldn't expect are going to guide your career or that you're going to be meeting all around town. All of the engineers I met working on the ground floor of places are now in big places. They're doing big things, and we're all still in touch. We're all still buddies because we all kind of cover each other's shifts or we all meet each other or we all, like, you know, on tour, for example, I'll be on the road and I'll go to a club and another touring engineer will be Ross Harris, who worked over at the rickshaw, who tour manages and does sound for Best Coast. You, you, you start to meet people and you start to realize, like, how things are shifting and then you, you really get a chance to get a sense of what the scene is like of like who's doing what and what the engineers are and it gives you a wider sense of like where you can get in, where you fit, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why I loved that. I think, you know, like when you go to a place like the Fillmore, you're just a cog in a wheel. You go to a place like, you know, the Union, you're just a cog in a wheel. You're just a dude pushing boxes. But like at bottom of the hill, you know, you're doing lights, you're doing sound, you're doing monitors, you're doing front of house, you're meeting bands every single time, three bands a night, you know, you're, you're doing it all. You know, you really get a chance to set up your workflow the way you like it. You really get a chance to test out tricks that you learn from people. You're never going to do that. You know, if you if you work at, at the Fillmore, for example, Deanne, who works at the Fillmore, she's great. She's fantastic. She's a great engineer. You know, if you're, like, lo- unloading boxes at the Fillmore as a union gig, you can talk to Deanne, but when's the next time you're going to mix on that Midas? Right? You're never going to mix on that Midas for a long time. <laughs> like, for a long time. You're never going to do it, you know? But if you work at Bottom of the Hill and you learn a really neat trick from Alex or Paul or Barrett, you can cover a shift for them and use that same trick the next time you work. Hey, Sound Design Live listener. A couple of times a year, I give away a limited number of free career coaching sessions. It's called Get Book Solid in Pro Audio, and you can grab one if you are one of the first five people to sign up at sounddesignlive.com slash solid. During this one-on-one career consultation, we will work together to identify the key relationships to get the best gigs, uncover the communication breakdown that is sabotaging your success, and create a next step action plan. If you'd like to take advantage of this very special, very limited, and totally free 30-minute Get Book Solid in Audio session, sign up now at sounddesignlive.com slash solid. The worst part 
working these same gigs at small and medium-sized places is that at the end of the day, we're there to sell alcohol. And that means that we don't have a lot of influence over maybe production quality, improving conditions for artists and things yeah, like absolutely. that. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, that part is absolutely true. Um, we don't get a lot of the time, you know, you can't walk into a place like Bottom of the Hill and be like, hey, Lynn, Ramona, we need to get a Midas Heritage 3000 and we need a DMB rig on the sides and, you know, we need brand new monitors. We need a monitor guy on the side of the stage. And, you know, that's like thousands of dollars worth of equipment, not to mention tens of thousands of dollars in installation costs. But it, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. It's a chance for you to learn. No sound system is ever perfect. I did sound at Austin City Limits in front of 10,000 people. The systems guy was complaining to me about the system. I was like, dude, <laughs> are you serious right now? This is like incredible. Like this is like, these sound like studio monitors outside in a field in front of like thousands of people. I, I never felt like there was much opportunity for me to, to say, I have some ideas for improvements because all the money came from alcohol. And so, you know, the ideas for improvements were in ways to get people to drink more alcohol. Right, and that's the thing that a lot of, there is that disconnect there, where you have, you know, you have, on one side, you have an owner that says, you know, we're here to sell booze because that's how we make money, and you're an audio engineer that's saying, I think we can make these improvements, and then we would have better sounding shows, which would lead to more people coming, which would lead to more alcohol sales. So you never kind of struggled with that? You were just like, this is how it is? Well... You know, you're, you can struggle with it all you want, but I, I always come from the school of, like, you can't complain about the rain. So, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to sit inside all day and complain about how it's raining outside, or are you going to, like, go out and do the things that you were going to do? I think you can, you can sit there like, okay, there's a club in, in Boston, Massachusetts that will remain nameless, that I've been to, that has a whole left side, right? It's facing a wall. <laughs> the whole left side of the PA facing a wall. And, and I told the sound engineer, I was like, hey, man, I just want to make sure you know this, right? You do know that the left side of that doesn't actually hit anyone, right? <laughs> that there's no single person that's actually going to hear this. He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, but because of the fire code, we can't have it tilted front. We have to have it tilted to the side. So it's never going to change unless they decide to rebuild the club. So, well, let me ask you, do you think there's such a thing as a reputation? Is your reputation important? And the reason that I asked that, when I just started out working at small places and was impressionable, a guy told me that the places that I work, if they're kind of shitty places, can have an effect on my reputation. And so I should try to work at nice places. And I was like, well, fuck me. I, not a lot I can do about that, you know? This place that I work, I've met a lot of good people, but it has a lot of problems, too. And so that kind of fucked with my head. Do you think that's true? To some extent. Has that affected your well, career not really. It hasn't, because of the technical limitations of the places you've worked at? It hasn't really affected my... Because the, the, thing, the thing... Here's the thing. I, of course, is it better to have the Fillmore or, the, or Slims on your resume than Café du Nord or, you know, the Red Onion, which is now closed, the little com comedy club or whatever, um, or the Brava Theater, where I once did... I did, like, a few nights there. I did, like, theater work one night, you know? Of course. But... You know, the thing about it is, is that you're never going to get in those places unless you do the little places. And the key about reputation is word gets out if you're really bad. And if you're really bad at your job, and if you're a really bad guy, if you're really not like a nice guy to deal with, word gets around town. People will call other people. I mean, that's how I got all these touring gigs anyway, was people, I was on a list. I was on a list of guys that were noted, noted as being really nice, good engineers in San Francisco. I, I know all those dudes, and half of those dudes spent a lot of time working in really crappy clubs. I was the head of house at the Red Devil, at the Red Devil Lounge. Do I think that that has affected my career, for example? Absolutely not. And some people would list that as being like kind of a you know, lower-end club, which is mm -hmm. now closed. You know. But... It definitely didn't affect my reputation at all. In fact, I think it helps because I think when you work at a little place, it kind of shows that you're willing to deal with, with all of the problems that I was like talking to you about earlier. Like if you work at a little place that doesn't have the best sound system, that doesn't have the most quality of stuff, you're, you're, you're willing to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And so some clubs will look at that and say like, oh, you want to work here? 
well, you worked here. Like Slims, for example, when they hired me, they were like, oh, you're one of the guys from Cafe du Nord. Come on in. Well, I, I think that's totally true on a resume. Like you see, oh, you worked at this place, and like, okay, you went through a trial by fire a little bit. And right. Like you have experience. I think what this guy was thinking of when he told me that is that possibly having an artist having a bad experience at the place you're working at, it's hard for them to separate you from that bad, from the venue sure. from that bad. So if you, they're not going to contact you in the future because they had a bad time at that place and they remember you from that place. So you, you can only you can, you can only control. That. There's nothing you can do about that. You, you have to be able to control your experiences with artists. And you have to be able to control your experiences with them and the sound system. You know, a lot of sound engineers forget that. A lot of sound guys will go and they'll complain and then they'll say to the band, oh, it sounds like, it sounds like crap in here, yada, yada, yada. And the band will be like, well, we don't care about that. Like, make us sound good. <laughs> like, don't tell us that the sound system's crap. Since you can only control your, your interaction, if you do your best with that interaction, it will never hurt you. If you always try your best, even if, even if the band has a bad time there, they can have a bad time there for all kinds of other reasons. And that's something that a lot of young engineers forget. Sometimes, a, you know, let's say like the band comes up, and I only know this now from being on the road, but like if a band shows up to a venue and they load it in and the house manager was a dick to them and they ran out of gas on the highway and the drummer had to pay for the gas and... You know, they, the loadout was really late the night before, and the, the the guitar player went off with some girl, and then the next morning they had to pick him up, and <laughs> and you know by the time by the time you as the sound guy shake your first hand with a band, there could be all kinds of other drama that are going on that caused the band to be like we had a really horrible time that time, because you know they're 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 human beings, they're people, you know I once saw a band load into bottom of the hill. And before the sound guy ever shook their hand, they had a full-on fistfight out front. <laughs> they had a wow. full-on fistfight out front. I was outside, like, waiting to get in because I didn't have a code. I watched a band have a full-on fistfight. Like, just pushing each other, shoving each other, like... And then, sure enough, they had to load in. They load in, and they get on stage, and there's two guys that, like, hate each other that are now oh on God. stage. And they had, like, the worst sound check. <laughs> and they blamed the engineer, and they blamed this, and they blamed that. But, but really, it was their interaction before they arrived. That's why I tell people all the time, like, you can't control whether someone has a good time or a bad time with a venue. You can control whether someone has a good or a bad time with you and whether someone has a good or bad time with your sound system. And bands are way easier to deal with than people think. And they understand that there's certain venues and certain things that they can or can't do. They understand that. But what they don't understand are people that are lazy, people that phone it in, people that are jerks, people that are house guys. You know, I had a house guy in, in, in Wisconsin that came up. I walked up to him after driving through three states with, again, like I told you in the car, no, no heating. Right, So we're in the middle of Wisconsin. It's freezing cold. We had no heater. We're like shivering the whole time. We get to this place. We show up on time for load-in. I walk up to the house guy. I'm like, hey, how's it going, man? My name's Brian. I'm the house engineer. From freezing the, to death. Freezing to death. Starving. Freezing to death. Starving, like <laughs> broke. Like, I go up to him and said, hey, I'm Brian. I'm the tour manager in front of house engineer for the Stone Foxes. And this guy like looks at me and he goes, he goes yeah, I got your input list. I'm like, okay. And he goes, yeah, man, you're not getting any of it. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, what do you mean I'm not getting any of it? And he goes, he goes you're not getting a single input on this list at all. <laughs> right? Now, I'm a, I'm a really nice guy. I have a great reputation around town. People around town really know me. Um, and, and, I, and I try my best to and be as nice. now you have a completely different reputation in Wisconsin. Now I have a completely different <laughs> reputation in Wisconsin because I had to tell this guy, I had to tell this guy, I was like, listen, man, like, I'll go and rent my own sound system and build it right now. And I'll build the thing because I'm, I'm not even lying to you. I've, I've been driving for two states. I have no air conditioning in the van. I'm freezing, I'm cold, I'm hungry, and I'm tired. And here you are, some dude at this little hall in Wisconsin, and you're gonna go and you're gonna try to tell me that I can't have any of the inputs on my, on my input list? I go, meanwhile, our headliner is like three hours late. So what are you gonna do, you know? And I turned around and within 
probably about five minutes, he comes back to me and he says, is this all current? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I'll pin it all up for you. And from the rest of that night on, he was my biggest fan. But, but that goes to show you that, like, you can absolutely have, you know, a really great experience with someone at a really divey place and be treated like royalty. And that goes so much farther than, than, than engineers even think. So Brian, I want to tell you a quick story and then I want you to tell me how dumb I was. Okay. Sure, we can do that. So, do you know Laura Veers, Laura Viers? I always forget how to say her name. Back when I was living in Portugal, I went through a phase where I was contacting all of my favorite artists because mm -hmm. I had this idea that they would want to hire me for European tours because I was there already and I knew my way around. Yeah. So after lots of dead ends, finally one person wrote me back. So when Lara Veers was uh, coming to Portugal, she said that we could meet. So after the show, we talked backstage and she and her drummer, that's the only person she was touring with at the time, said that they would be interested in hiring me to be the tour manager and sound engineer. Mm -hmm. And I was so let down and I, and I said no because I thought that it would be crazy to try to do the both jobs that normally two people would do, I figured. But that's exactly what you do. Right. So was that the worst business decision I've ever made? Yes and no. <laughs> well, at the time I just thought, that's ridiculous. Why? That would make me crazy. I wouldn't be able to do it. And I just had all these reasons of why I couldn't do it. Yeah, everybody gets nervous about the TM okay. part of the TM front of house part, right? Everybody gets terrified. It's a terrifying thing. I was terrified of it for a long time. I'm still kind of terrified of it, and I still do it. Um, but it's just another way for people to get work. I, I come from a world where, you know, take whatever you can, man. Get whatever work you got. And it's not, it's not bad that you did that, because the other thing, you know, to, just, just to let you know in your story, it sounded like you had a very clear focus on what you really wanted. You didn't want to be the tour manager in front of house for Laura Veers. You wanted to be the front of house guy. Mm -hmm. You didn't want to have to deal with the other 10 hours of the tour manager job. You wanted to just deal with the sound part. Yep. And that is okay. There's a lot of guys in the city that I know of that do just that. And they, they, they do okay. They, they choose not to tour manage because they feel that that should be two jobs and two people should do that and that shouldn't be one person. That's not doing it justice, both jobs. It's not doing justice to the tour manager job, not doing justice to the front of house job. So let's talk about how that works. I don't really know what the duties of the tour manager are, so maybe you could walk us through a day on tour with, um, say, Dan Kroll or the Stone Foxes. Um, well, they're both two very different animals. Okay. So the tour managing part has two very different things about them. Um, we'll, we'll go through the Foxes first because I feel like that's something that, that will make a lot more sense um, because it's a much smaller band and they do a little bit of a smaller kind of, kind of show. Tour managing the Foxes is generally a pretty easy affair now, but when I first started it, you know, the list includes what time is load-in? What time is sound check? Do we have drink tickets? Do we have a buyout? Um, what time do, do we want to leave the hotel? Uh, where is the hotel for the night? Um, you know, all of these questions. How long is our set? What's our payout, What's our payout tonight? Um, how much merch did we sell last night? It's basically like all of these questions have to get answered. Mm -hmm. So let's say like I, usually my tour manager day doesn't start until the day before. So let's take it from, let's say it's one o'clock in the morning in the Motel 6, right? Send out a text message to everybody. Hey guys, van call, 10 in the morning, tomorrow. We have a five hour drive. Good night, <laughs> right? Nine o'clock in the morning, get up, take a shower, get dressed, check email. Uh, make sure that there's no surprise guest appearances tonight. Make sure there's no um, press that's going on. There's no radio guys that have to get in, guest list requests, um, any last minute stuff like that emails with the manager just to make sure that I'm on point with that stuff. I include management in everything that I do as a tour manager because I feel like I'm them there, 
right? So I want to make sure that the manager knows, is, is abreast of what's going on throughout okay. all the stuff. Then get down to the lobby, meet up with the guys, go to the van, drive for five hours. You drive the van? Uh, I don't drive all the time. I actually okay. specifically say that with, when I take tour manager gigs, is I say, I'm not doing all of the driving. We will have to split the driving. Because I don't want to be stuck on a 12-hour drive by myself. Yeah. You know? I want to be able to split that. And I feel like it, it kind of keeps everybody in check because if we're all taking turns and we're all being good about stuff, then nobody's, like, boozing crazily or, or anything like that, you know? Um, not that any of these bands do that. But, you know, it's just something that, like, in the, for, for anybody who wants to be a tour manager in front of House Guy, it's a good thing to kind of be like, hey, I just won't do all of the driving, <laughs> you know? Because the other thing, too, it's for your sanity. Yeah. So it's during that five-hour drive. I'm on the phone, making calls to the venue, making sure we're all good for load-in, making sure that they're open, calling up the promoter, making sure that we've got the buyout or that we've got all the things in check, finding out where we park our van, uh, making sure that you know we have a safe place to park, all that stuff. It's all the logistics of touring in one job, right? And then you get to the venue, you load out, and then I take the tour manager hat off and I put the sound guy hat on. So now I'm loading my stuff on, clipping on my microphones, putting my mics out, uh, making sure that the guys have all of their stuff, um, talking to the house guy, which is the number one thing. And, I, and I'll stress this a thousand times. For anybody who wants to be a touring engineer, getting to know your house engineer is like the golden rule. Knowing whether or not your house engineer knows anything or knows everything is important to how your day is going to run. You know, I can't tell you how often I've walked into a place and a guy didn't know anything, and that makes the experience really difficult. When the guy's just sitting around drinking beer and you're just like, hey, where's all the microphone cables? And he's like, <laughs> it's in the milk crate in the closet, man. You didn't see it? And then you're like, well, of course I didn't see it, man. I'm, I'm Not only am I new to this club, I'm new to this town. I, I don't know you, like... But when you get an engineer that, that really knows his stuff, oh, man, it's like it's beautiful. And then once sound check's over, sound guy hat comes off, tour manager hat comes on. All right, everybody, let's go backstage. You go backstage, you pop open your computer, double-check the emails, make sure that there's nothing crazy going on, get guest lists from everybody, hand in the guest list stuff, check in on the pre-sale, how many pre-sale we got going on. All, like, the little details that the guys are going to want to know about. Because they're really dictating to you what they want to know, you know? And you should have those answers if you can. And then once the show starts, then it's sound guy hat back on, you know? Now the room has completely changed. You have 350 people in a room and it's packed. Sound check meant nothing, right? So now you've got this room of bodies that have soaked up the sound. So that low thing <laughs> that you were EQing out doesn't exist anymore. So now you got to, like, put some of that back in and you make your moves and... The compressor went out. Oh no! So now you got to do it without compression. So you take the compressor out. And now you're like just you know playing with gain structures. And then once that's done, uh, well, for the first thing you do is you go over to the merch booth and you check in with merch. Um, on on the Foxes runs, I'm selling a lot of merch. On the Dan Kroll runs, I'm also doing merch as well. So I'll step off the console and then run and sell T-shirts and <laughs> take all the money and That's write down how much stuff that we've done. Yeah, it was pretty... Some people have said it's pretty nutty that I did all that, but I, I do three jobs at the same time, and so as long as there's, like, as long as they know that there's a gap, you know, well, the band's playing, no one's sitting at the merch because I got to do that, too. I ran into a sound guy at the Red Devil Lounge who did the very same thing, but he was a little bit weirder than I was. He would actually sell merch during the show, <laughs> and what he would do is he'd get a mix going, and then he'd be like, all right, my man, take a seat. And then you would sit down, and he would run downstairs, and he'd be like, how many T-shirts do you want? What size do you need? And you'd be like up at the desk, and you'd be like, am I doing his job? Like, is that really happening? So then, so then you sell merch, and then at the end of selling merch, then I go and I get myself a cocktail, get myself a lovely vodka, and then I uh, go meet up with the door guy, and I see what the pre-sale was like, and then I go and I settle. Do the settlement, take a look at the contract, make sure that the settlement is, meets up with the contract, and make sure that we've got all the money together, count it in front of the guy, and then take the settlement money, uh, take that with me, and then... Um, count it, because you're getting paid cash, huh? Count it, because you're getting paid cash, or you're getting a check. Are you just driving around tour with, like, 
big shoebox full why of cash. Do you think, why do you think <laughs> bands go crazy when they when they lose their vans? Oh, man. Not only is it equipment, man, sometimes it's money. But sometimes you're driving around with a bunch of cash. I mean, we stop by banks and deposit the cash. I mean, we're, you know, it's not like the foxes are running around with like $10,000 in the vehicle. But like, you, you know, you run around like, and then every stop or two you go to a bank. But yeah, and then at the end of the night, uh, after we're done settling and everybody's loading up, you get everyone to get in the van. Um, usually what I do when that's happening is I'll have one of the guys pack merch and then I'll do a report. I, I printed up my own reports that I created in Excel so that way I could uh, make And all easy. that experience with spreadsheets is finally paying off. Isn't that crazy? Well, that's the weird part about my career is that all of the things that I did until then have absolutely been incredibly helpful. Hmm. Um, now I have spreadsheets for all the things that I do. <laughs> and it's funny that now, you know, I'll be, I had this moment, it was in New York and I was in the bottom of the, I was at the, uh, the Mercury Lounge. Sold out show, Mercury Lounge crazy. And I was sitting at the back of the bar, like we were loading out in the middle of the night and I was like on this computer and I was like, I'm on a computer doing spreadsheets and I have a big smile on my face. That's pretty weird. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, so you fill out the reports and then I send those reports off to management and then we get in the van and then the questions begin. How much did we get paid tonight? Man, the food sucked. The house sound guy was kind of a dick. Did he know anything? You know, that's when, that's when I hear the feedback on the other side, like on how the other guys felt about the show. And that we carry with us. You know, I'll email the booking agent if something was atrocious. And we'll email the booking agent and we'll say, this club sucked. I mean, the Mercury Lounge didn't, it was incredible. But again, that, that goes to what I was saying earlier about customer service and all that stuff. I mean, we've been in some venues that have been terrible, but I'll tell you what, we've gotten in the van and the guys have been like, oh man, that house guy was really nice, wasn't he? A sweetheart. He's <laughs> such a sweetheart. Like, you know, we did a show in Sacramento at Ace of Spades and, and the monitor guy, we still talk about him to this day. The monitor guy over there is some British guy who does monitors over at Ace of Spades and Sacto. That guy is like a legend for us. In, on an incredible night that we had. Awesome. So, yeah. And that's, that's what both jobs are. And for Dan Kroll, it's a, it's a little bit different only because the stages are a lot bigger. So I find that my sound guy hat is a little bit bigger than normal. Does it benefit you in terms of money? Is it kind of like a second revenue stream? Do Absolutely. you get paid a little bit more because you're doing more jobs, so there yeah. are more benefits to that kind Absolutely. of stuff? Absolutely, you get paid a little bit more for doing both. Okay. But it, you know, you can do it on just on just one side of the coin. And there's a, again, I know a guy that tour manages in this front of house. He's now doing tour managing in front of house for Future Islands. Um, which are blowing up huge. I'm really happy for him. He's incredible. Um, and he's, one, he's another one of my favorite dudes that I see on the road often. And we toured together. He, opened, he mixed the opener for the last Dan Kroll run I did. Um, but he very often, because I was always just doing tour managing in front of house, because I was so anxious to get out on the road, I was like, yeah, I'll take it. Whatever, I'll do it. But he's done just front of house gigs. And he's like, you know, here's the thing. They do happen. They do come up. Um, and... It, it comes up often enough to where you can just be a touring front of house guy. But the tour manager front of house combination has been something that's been popular since the early 2000s and that's been kind of like the thing because okay. a lot of guys don't have the money to pay two. They gotta pay one, you know? Paying $150 a night, 200 a night for someone to do both tour managing in front of house is much more in the budget than paying 400 a night to get both. Yep. And at the size of the clubs, that's the other thing too. The size of the clubs that you're playing also dictate that. If you, you like, and that's where you can kind of research on where you want to work and how you want to work. You know, when you work at a place like Cafe du Nord or the Red Devil Lounge or Bottom of the Hill, you're seeing a lot of that tour manager front of house guy. Because those are the rooms that are small enough to where, they're big enough to where they deserve their own uh, front of house guy. And they're probably on a tour that needs to have a, front of, a, a tour manager. When you go to a place like the Fillmore, the Warfield, even Slims, you'll see that they're separate guys mm -hmm. more often than not. You'll okay. see more tour managers and front of house guys. Another thing that you do that I think a lot of people have not been exposed to, and including myself, that we'd like to know more about, is that you work at a museum. Yes, I do. Kind of weird. So you have been working at the California Academy of Sciences, and for people who've never been to San Francisco, that is a really cool 
Science Museum in Golden Gate Park. Maybe you could talk about what you do there, because I think when you first think sound engineer at a museum, why would they need you? Because they want to yeah. show people what old and disgruntled looks like inside of a glass case. So you're just standing <laughs> there looking at people as they walk by and they see a sad and disgruntled man. No, the Academy of Sciences is a legendary museum in the city of San Francisco. I used to go there when I was a kid, been there lots when I was a kid. They closed down and they opened up a brand new building in Golden Gate Park in the same location. I got hired on to be an event audiovisual technician because they opened it up for events. So they rent out the building for oh, all so kinds of things. like companies can rent it for events. And then they also have some events, like once a month they have an event that's public, right? Well, they have, they have an event every Thursday night. Every Thursday night. Okay. That's uh, Nightlife, which is an event that happens every Thursday, which is where I have to be this afternoon. You know, they open it up. You can get booze and you drink and you walk around the museum. A lot and of museums they have are bands doing that. Playing stuff. They have bands playing okay. stuff, so I, t- I deal with all the bands there. I also deal with all the advancing because I was a tour manager. And you know, it's funny, like going back on how my career choices affected my time now is one of the reasons they really liked my resume was I was at one point when I did my capitals and my record label stints, I was an executive assistant to C-level executives. So I know how to deal with the really rich guy that has the head the head guy job, mm. you know? And in doing that, they were like, oh, so you deal with that all the time, so you could probably deal with an event with like this guy. And you go, yeah, sure, no, no big deal. Being a live sound engineer has really opened up a lot of different doors for me because, you know, if you take the technical stuff and you kind of like push that away for a second, really what we are are we're people that are helping facilitate an event that happens and that event that happens is usually under high stress. There's lots of different, you know, you, if you look at a sound engineer job and you kind of make it like a regular job description, you can take that anywhere. You can do all kinds of things with it because it's, it's got all kinds of other deals besides just audio because we deal with so many different things. I mean, you know, we do so many different hats. Uh, theater audio guys, I still don't know how you guys deal with that on a nightly basis because that to me, I did a stint doing, I did that once and that to me was like, you guys should have my job because doing event <laughs> audio is like the same thing, you know? But anyway, but what I do there now is I'm, I'm helping out with audio installs and I'm helping build things. I'm helping to like, you know, help the sound system out, make improvements. It's not an event space, right? So anytime you're setting up for an event, you are installing a sound system in some part of the museum that you're turning into an event space. Correct. Right? Yeah. So like you have to know, you know, you have to know like a fast fold, which is a thing a lot of hotel AV guys and a lot of other audiovisual guys know about. You know, you you set up a big screen and then you set up a projector and then you set up a couple microphones and a lot of audiovisual guys and a lot of audio engineers are scared of being at a place full time, but I can tell you it's nice. It's a, it's a lovely living. I mean, it, you're not doing as much of the flashy stuff, but it's a good way, you know, as freelancers, we oftentimes forget that we have to think about a little bit further down the line. You know, we don't, yeah. we, we, we always think about what happens today. What, what am I gonna do project? today? What's the next project? Yeah. What's the next thing? What's the, how am I gonna pay rent this month? You know, not necessarily thinking about, well, like, what am I going to do, like, when I'm 40? You know, what am I going to do when I'm, like, 50? You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. So I'm curious if there's anything special you do on tour to stay healthy in terms of, like, Exercise, eat salad, food. Eat a salad. Yeah. Don't don't fool around with yourself. Eat a salad. Right. Just do it as often as you can. Get vegetables and get sleep. Find time to sleep because you won't be doing either. You know. You, you lucky. Luckily for me, both bands that I've toured with, they have healthy things on their rider. You know, they have healthy stuff. They have like you know, Jamba Juices, or they have, like, you know, all sorts of silly, healthy things, cliff bars. I am not the healthiest character by any means. I don't jog. I don't walk. You know, I smoke a lot of cigarettes. I drink alcohol. I'm certainly not the healthiest person. But I can tell you that it makes touring that much more rough if you're eating, like, crap every day. 
Do you carry any measurement software with you? Um, if so, or if not, what's your procedure for verifying sound system before you start working on it? I have friends that are really into RTA and smart. They're really into smarting out a room. They're really into running white noise in a room. Um, I have other friends that use their voice to EQ out a room. But really, the you number... Use black noise. Yeah, I use black noise. Uh, <laughs> I, I, use, I use nothing but, but death metal. I use Tom Petty. That is my industry secret. That and a house guy. That's my number one go-to, because all the Tom Petty records are recorded absolutely perfectly. And <laughs> they're, they, they really are. I mean, okay. like, the, the isolation on those drum tracks is, like, it's insane. The snare sound... On Wallflowers, on his record Wallflowers, could be the best sounding snare I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. You play that, you get that going, and you're good. The second thing that I mentioned um, about the house guy, I ran into, I have so many stories. I ran into, uh, I was doing a show at the Red Devil Lounge, and there was this band that came through um, who will remain nameless, and a sound engineer who will remain nameless, who told me a great story. He once spent over an hour and a half EQing out the House of Blues in New Orleans with his voice, just talking into the microphone while they were loading in and like, oh, I don't like that, flattening it out and I'm doing this and then flattening it out and then like talking to a microphone and it took him forever. He never once talked to the sound guy about the house graph. So at the end of the, the, end of the sound check, the, the house guy like is kind of sitting back and when the, when the touring guy comes back around, he goes, all right, I think I'm ready to go. He goes, cool, man, I just want to go ahead and check something out. He goes, what is it? I'm going to save your, uh, your, your file, your, your, your housecraft. Let me just pull up my housecraft. He pulls it up. It's the exact same thing. <laughs> Always knowing if your house guy, if your house guy doesn't know what he's talking about and he doesn't know anything about the housecraft, then move on and keep doing your thing. But just talk to the house guy for five minutes. That five minutes might save your life. The house guy says to you, yeah, man, there's like some ring at like 250 in here that's like pretty brutal. I'd say do it without it and sound check and then see what goes on. Try it. The worst case scenario is that you got to move it back up if he doesn't know what he's talking about. But that's my, that's my number one way of, of smarting out a room. Play Tom Petty all day and talk to the house guy. Um, okay, so I know loud stages are something that we have to deal with when working in small to medium-sized venues. Do you have any good tricks for dealing with lowering stage volume and making sure that everyone can hear themselves? You know, I thought about this question a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Because... You're like, no, there's no answer. It's dead. It's not that there's no answer. It's just that it's tough. Because when you're, you know, you're not like Metallica, who has all of their amplifiers and boxes underneath the stage. So the actual stage volume is zero, Right. They, they, you know, that's not like that. When you when you tour with any of these bands, they you know, and a lot of musicians, being a musician myself, love the sound of an amp cranked on stage, right? We don't care about vocalists; we just crank it up on stage. So my number one trick um, to kind of help out with that is I will sometimes, and I'm sorry, guys, if you guys listen to this, I apologize to all the guys I've ever toured with who have felt this <laughs> and been like, I wonder why that's happening. Um, but my number one trick is I give them a little bit of what they're putting out. So I turn up their monitor with their guitar a little bit. And then they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And they're like, yeah, man, it's like blasting out here. <laughs> and, then, and then they go on ahead and they turn, them, turn their amp down a little bit. Some psychological games. Sorry, Spennies. Um, sorry, Ben. Another thing that I like to do when I was, when I was at the Red Devil Lounge, we had, a, we had a noise limit. And that was a very tough thing to get over, right? So what, what I would do often is I would just have guys flip their amps around. I'd say, flip your amp around, face the wall. And they'd be like, why? Why would I do that? And, and I had one guy who was adamant, just fought me tooth and nail about it. And I just told him, I said, listen, man, I got to meet 92 decibels. My voice in a library is 85. <laughs> yeah. So... We got we to make do here. So the guy begrudgingly went ahead and flipped his amp around. And then I just cranked it in his monitor, and he was like, whoa, I love this. And that was kind of like my way from then on out of being like, that's how I'm going to do it to try to avoid stage volume. You can't do it all the time. You're always going to have a problem. Vocals and monitors is such a tough thing already. 
because guys always want more of it. And when, and when they think they don't want any more of it, they want more of it. But what I've learned recently um, from doing monitors at Slims here in, the, in, in San Francisco is to kind of try to anticipate that that's, what's, that's what their needs are going to be and then creating a, a monitor system that will allow them to hear themselves better. So monitor placement, which is something not a lot of guys think about, is absolutely paramount to EQing your wedges. You know, it's almost, it's almost the same, right? Like, y- you can create a listening environment for a guy on stage that can be absolutely fantastic for him just by moving the monitors. Plus, you, can, you have to EQ your monitors less, mm-hmm. you know? And that is, that's something that a lot of guys don't think about. Well, I really try to hold back on EQing the monitors when I work with bands. And I, when I set up the stage, I'll put the microphone in what I feel like will probably be the perfect position for uh, rejection, right? Right. And then if the musician comes up then later and moves it, then I'll go up and talk to them and I'll say, it's fine for you to put the microphone there. It's fine for you to move things around. I'll just let you know that if I start getting feedback, I'm going to have to come up here and we're going to have to put it back closer to the way that I had it. And they usually kind of understand that, but I feel like it's a funny conversation to it's have. A very, people it's are a very like, I can't just do whatever I want. Right. You've got to remind people of the big picture. Well, I mean, and that's where knowing that, that fine line between being a sound guy and getting what you want and being the guy playing the show and getting what you want. Because you have to remember, we're also there to give them, you know, to make their show. We're, we're there to, to handle all the technical things that they don't know about, right? Yeah. And so we have to make their situation as comfortable as possible. Um, so sometimes placing monitors in a place where there's the most rejection may be great, but they may not like the way it looks. And so then you're stuck in this situation of, well, form over function, what do I say? You know, you, you went about it good, and I'm sure that it's worked out well for you in some places. Sometimes for me, it doesn't work out that way. And then sometimes <laughs> for me, I'm a little too late on the ball game. Or like, I've got like so many different things going on that I look up and then the guy just moved his wedge and I was like, oh, oh my God, I placed that for a reason. And then what am I <laughs> going to say to this guy? You physics, know, you can't fight physics. You can't fight the physics. But what, what, I, what I love to do for monitors, I'll just go... What, to that part of this. What I love to do for guys and monitors is I love to make them as comfortable as I can and give them as much vocal as humanly possible. From the very beginning? From the very beginning. Okay. I'd love to just, I want them to get on the microphone and be like, whoa, turn that down, right? Because it's so loud in their wedge, they're just like, they're like, oh my God, right? The reason for that is, is that when the band starts playing, that turning it down has bought me that much more headroom. Right? It's bought me a little bit of a ceiling. And in buying me a little bit of that ceiling, it allows me to go ahead and creep up. And so when they feel like they don't want it to be that loud again, they just want it to like kind of creep up a little bit more, it gives me that, that extra boost. Plus, I, I don't know if you do this, I don't compress to monitors. I do zero compression going to the wedges. No, I don't compress. I don't compress a single thing going to wedges. Especially then because if they're going to yell or get really loud in the song, they need to hear what that sounds like. Or that's what they want to hear. Correct. I, yeah, I think they it's... want that gas. My friend Sebastian and I, because I, I started compressing the monitors. Sebastian actually talked to me about that. We had a big, we, we sit down all the time. We have lunch like once a week. He was like, don't compress it at all. And I was like, dude, but why? Like, I'm getting clippy inputs. Like, he's like, then just watch your gain stage. But, but the thing is, is that guys want to hear the gas. They want to hear the amp rev up, you know? They want to, using the car analogy, they, they don't want to feel like they're, they're being held back by something they can't control. And the moment I started doing that, I was like, Whew. I just, my whole world changed. Because then I was like, oh my God, I don't have to compress going to wedges. And, and that's helped me out immensely. Another thing that I do, I will sometimes split vocal signals. I'll use a Y cable. So if I'm doing front of house and monitors from the same desk, I will split my vocal up and I'll use a vocal channel for monitors and a vocal channel for vocals for the house. Because what, what that allows me to do is now I have two separate signals and I'm essentially my own monitor engineer. So by doing that, it allows me to, to crank up a gain stage, futz around, futz around with EQ, not having to do the same on my vocal channel coming to the house. It took me, it took me a couple of, couple of tries to get what that What kind right. of changes do you see in the signal that you're sending to the monitors compared 
to the signal that you're sending to the house? So I'll cut a lot of low end. So I'll, I'll, I'll trim out, like I, I high pass everything. I, I believe in cleaning up my mix. I'm just a big believer in that, that high passing a lot of things can absolutely change the dynamics of your mix. And it allows you to kind of keep things in nice and together. Everything plays nicer when you got all the low end taken out of a lot of things um, that, that, that need it taken out. Instead of notching the EQ, by, by splitting the signal, I then get the full gas of the EQ. I can leave it flat, and I can just make notches out on my end. Unless okay. it's, like, too loud. You know, that's the thing. Once you're making too many cuts, it's because your monitor is too loud. You know, and that's, like, a constant. It's a constant battle. But I try to do that because then that way it just makes the, the, the monitors cleaner, and it, and it allows me to keep a channel for myself, and it, it just... It's a good way to organize things. Those are kind of all the specific questions that I had. I mean, I have this last general question, just like if yeah. there's anything that you're doing in terms of your work that you think is unique or valuable that other people should know about or something that you feel like is helpful that you do all the time that maybe other people don't do. Lately, it's actually really funny how this whole thing comes back around, but lately, because I've been home a lot, I started getting back into the studio, and I'm realizing that with my live work, I've become so much faster of an engineer, and I've become much better at just the overall recording structure. Hmm. Brian, where is the best place for people to follow you online? I have a Twitter. You can tweet me. It's at Badler82, um, and I can, get, I can get back to you. I have an Instagram, Badler82. But, you know, if you liked what you heard or if you had any questions, you can feel free to email me, brianadlersound at gmail.com. Awesome, Brian. Well, thanks for being on Sound Design Live. Thank you so much, Nate. Now let's go get some burritos, huh? (laughs) Sound Design Live. Thanks for listening to Sound Design Live. Music in today's episode was provided by EO. You can find him by going to bandcamp.com and typing in the letters E and O. Thanks again to Brian Adler for coming all the way out to Oakland. I'm Nathan Lively. See you next time on Sound Design Live.